0: There are 66 books in the Bible. There are 1,189 chapters. Out of all those books, the one that is most precious to me is Romans. And of all the chapters, the one that is most meaningful is Romans chapter 8. It's a chapter that begins with a declaration of no condemnation. It's a chapter that ends with a promise Of no separation. And in between, there are 39 verses that give rise to great celebration. I invite you one more time to take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 8. I want to read in your hearing verses 31 to 39. Once you've found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Romans chapter 8, allow me to begin at verse 31. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, the understanding, and the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. The Apostle Paul begins this final paragraph of Romans chapter 8 with the question, how then shall we respond to this? The question begs another question. What is the this he's referring to? And the this must hearken back to Romans chapter 8, verses 28 to 30. How then shall we respond to this? This fact that we know our God works in all things, for the good of his people, to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. How then shall we respond to this, this being that you have been predestined before the very foundation of the world to be conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ? How then shall we respond to this, that this reality that we know, that those he predestined, he also called. And in, in response to his call, we respond in faith. And because of that faith, we are justified. And justified means not only forgiveness of sin but declared innocent both now and forevermore and once we are justified we have the promise that we will be glorified how then shall we respond to this i don't know about you but at the very least we ought to say hallelujah thank you jesus we ought to say thank you god for what you've done for us in christ for don't you know that god should have killed us but he kept us He should have slaughtered us, but he saved us. He should have left us, but he loves us. He should have destroyed us, but he has delivered us. How then should we respond to this? At the very least, we ought to say, thank you, Jesus. At the very least, we ought to say, hallelujah. At the very least, we ought to say, praise the Lord. Because as Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, that when I come to Romans chapter 8, It reminds me, it teaches me, it solidifies in my heart that we have satisfaction in Jesus. That in Jesus Christ, we have all that we need. This world is full of suffering. This world is full of trouble. Everything is topsy-turvy. Everything is tumultuous. But in this world of chaos, we have Christ. And Christ gives us all that we need. If it sounds too good to be true, the Apostle Paul then builds the argument for the rest of chapter 8 to prove his point. That our security is in Christ and Christ alone. Our stability is in Jesus Christ. He builds his argument with five questions. These five questions build one on the other. The first question is found in verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? Friend, this is a well-crafted question. If Paul had simply asked who can be against us, the list is endless. For there are various times, various seasons, when various people, for various reasons, are against us. The case could be made that there are times when the devil is against you. There are times when your spouse is against you. And no, the devil and the spouse are not one in the same. There are moments when the boss is against you. There are moments when the insurance company is against you. There are moments when the police are against you. There are moments when the government is against you. There are moments when your uncle is against you. There are moments when your classmate, teammate coach is against you. There are moments when there are various people at various times that are against you. In this passage, the apostle simply asks the question, if God is for us, who can be against us? It's a well-crafted question because God is the final court of appeals. The word if could be translated as since. Since God is for us, who could be against us? Then it really matters little, the suffering that surrounds us. It really matters little the pessimism that paralyzes us. It really matters little the chaos that consumes us. Because if God is for us, who could be against us? Since God is for his people, who in this world can truly, effectively be against us? The answer to that first question is no one that since God is for us, who can be against us? No one, no one can have any power. No one can truly have any sway. No one can have any effect over us. Why? Because God is for us. And since God is for us, who can be against us? The answer is no one. Second question comes in verse 32. In verse 32, the question is, will he not also graciously give us All things. Will He, being God, not also graciously give us, grant us all things? And the answer is of course He will. We know from other places that God meets all of our needs. Philippians chapter 4 My God will supply all of your needs according to His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. But I want you to hear me clearly, that the Bible is consistent, that God will meet all of our needs, but the Bible never promises that God will meet our greeds. Just because you're a follower of God, there's no guarantee that you're going to live in the big house, drive the fancy chariot, and land the lucrative job. You remember what Jesus said? Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. I take that to mean there are times when the animal kingdom will have it better than you. There are times, Jesus says, when I used a rock as my pillow, the stars as my blanket. There were moments when Jesus had no shelter over his head. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Just because you are a follower of Christ, there's no guarantee your life will be comfortable. No, but even in the chaos, God will provide all that we need. Paul makes the argument from the greater to the lesser. Since he did not spare his own son, will he not surely, graciously give us all that we need? Since he did not spare his own son, Paul is arguing from the greater to the lesser that the greatest need in your life is the need of salvation. And since God did not spare his own son in order to secure your salvation, since he took care of the greatest need in your life, doesn't it stand to reason he'll take care of all your other needs? Because every other need in life has to be secondary to the primary need for salvation. And in order to secure your salvation, he being God did not even spare his own son, but he willingly gave him so that you might be saved. You remember what Paul wrote earlier in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, friend, if God is gonna secure your salvation when you are a wretched sinner, then how much more will He secure all your lesser needs once you've been adopted into God's family and you're a child of the Lord? Doesn't it stand to reason that if He can satisfactorily give you salvation, which is your greatest need, then He surely can take care of your lesser needs? Will He not also graciously? Grant us all that we need? And the answer is absolutely. John Piper said it's not that Jesus um, stumbled in front of the bullet that was heading straight for you. No, Jesus willingly jumped in front of you, and he intentionally took the bullet for you. The certain demise that was facing you, coming at you, the bullet that was certainly going to result in your death, Jesus stepped in and he did it on purpose. And if he would do that on purpose to take care of your greatest need, then surely he would take care of any lesser need. What Paul is arguing is that in this life, whenever you get concerned with your culture, whenever you have questions that are swirling around you, whenever there is suffering to the right of you and the left of you, in front of you and behind you, seems to be above you and beneath you, when you are overwhelmed with chaos, in those moments when you wonder, is God going to take care of my needs? Paul says, all you got to do is look to Calvary. All you got to do is remember Calvary. If you look to Calvary, you'll know that your ultimate need of salvation is secured in Jesus. So it stands to reason he's going to take care of everything else. When you wonder, is God going to give me food to eat, water to drink? The answer is yes. How do you know, preacher? Just look to Calvary. When the question comes, are we going to overcome COVID? The answer is yes. How do you know, preacher? Just look to Calvary. When you think to yourself, is God going to fix up all these problems that left me messed up? The answer is yes. How do you know? Because we look to Calvary. If God took care of the ultimate need of salvation, then surely he will take care of all the lesser needs in your life. For he who did not spare his own son will also graciously give you all that you need. The third question comes in verse 33. Verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? Who will bring a charge against the chosen? Who can bring a charge against the chosen ones of God predestined for salvation before the very foundation of the world? Who can bring A charge against the chosen of God. It's a question that creates a courtroom scene. I want to try to paint the picture for you, as Paul must be thinking of this as he pins this question. Imagine with me that as a believer, you find yourself on the witness stand. God is the righteous judge. The courtroom is full of demonic thugs. The demons are cocky and arrogant. They are pointing fingers at you. They are calling out sins in your life. And they are silenced just by the mere glance of the righteous judge. All of a sudden, God asks the question, Who can bring a charge against the chosen? the prosecuting attorney sleeks towards the bench. It's none other than the devil himself. And the devil builds an airtight case against you and against me. He has evidence. He has date, time, location, frequency of dirty deeds that have been done. He brings to light things that you thought were kept in the dark. He brings it as... Exhibit A, exhibit B, exhibit C. He's got a laundry list. He, one by one, brings believer after believer onto the witness stand, and he accurately indicts. He says, of you, you're a gossip. You, you are a thief. You, you are a pervert. You, you are an adulterer. You think to yourself, but I've never I've never broken my marriage vows. But he reminds you of all those lustful images that you've gazed at. He says of you, you are a murderer. And you think to yourself, I've never killed anybody. But he reminds you of all those times when you got angry and you slandered a brother or sister, sliced and diced a reputation merely with the words that tumbled from your mouth. He says of you, you are materialistic. He reminds you how guilty you are of misusing the name of the Lord. He shows you how you have a foul mouth and a foul heart. He says of you, you are a robber. He indicts believer after believer after believer. And every time... He sets somebody up on the witness stand and he incriminates them, guilty as charged. The courtroom goes crazy for all the demonic thugs are hooping and hollering because they know that the devil is right. And you are guilty as charged. And then the righteous judge, God Almighty, once again asks the question: who can bring a charge? Against the chosen. Now, with the repetition of the question, the devil is aggravated. He's upset. He's perturbed. He asks for permission to come towards the bench. God grants it. And when the devil gets there, he says, What are you doing? Why are you saying that? I have accurately demonstrated there is no one righteous, no, not one. Every single person that you call a believer is guilty as charged. And I have proven that time and time again. I've got the evidence, everything is satisfactory. So why do you keep asking the question, who can bring a charge against the chosen? And then in dramatic fashion, all God does is he leans over the bench and he says, I am the God who justifies. With those words, the back door flings open. In walks the defense attorney. You recognize him. You know him. He's robed in white. He walks in and his hands are nail scarred. His side is sword pierced. He comes to the front and The demons, they shriek. The devil, he is dumbfounded. For the devil thought that he left him in the tomb. And Jesus now is your defense attorney. He stands up under the banner. And the banner just simply reads, paid in full. And God Almighty, who's the righteous judge, says to the serpent, you come here just for a second. I've got a lesson I need to teach you. It is true that my children are guilty. It is true that they are sinners. And because of of, of my justice, Penalty for sin has to be paid. But because of my grace, I made the penalty payment for them. For their sin, I placed on Jesus. And Jesus' righteousness, I now placed on them. And I am the God who justifies. And when I justify, not only do I say their sins are forgiven, but I say they are innocent. They are robed in the righteous innocence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in response, all the believers, all the redeemed... We just simply say, Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Can I get an amen and a thank you, Jesus? Now don't just give him a golf clap as if he just put it in a, an eight-footer. I mean, Jesus just paid your sin debt. Your defense attorney just came in and God Almighty said, I'm the God who justifies. I don't know about you, but I say, God, here's my life. Take it as yours. Because God asked the question, who can bring a charge against the chosen? And the answer Only God. And He has settled the account through our defense attorney, Jesus Christ. The fourth question comes in verse 34. Who is He that condemns? Who is He that condemns? As soon as you hear the words, your mind races back to the beginning of chapter 8. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But, beloved, let me just remind you that no condemnation is not synonymous with no consequences. Those are two different things. No condemnation does not mean no consequences. Moses was not condemned. For his anger, for the Lord said, I want you to speak to the rock, and he struck the rock. And while Moses received no condemnation, there were consequences. He was not able to lead the children into the promised land. David was not condemned for his sexual sin with Bathsheba, but he did carry the consequences for his actions for the rest of his life. The Apostle Paul was not condemned because of his persecution against the church, but he did carry consequences. So that Paul will write in other New Testament letters, God put a thorn in my side to keep me from being arrogant. I ask him to take it away. Remove the consequences. Who among us has never prayed that? Please, Lord, remove the consequences of my sin. And God just simply said, my grace is sufficient for you. For in your weakness, that's when you're made strong. No condemnation does not equate to no consequences. But here in our passage, the question is simply asked, who is he that condemns? The very next phrase is Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You may think to yourself, well, what the apostle is saying is the one who condemns is Christ Jesus. But there should be a check in your spirit for you think to yourself, but wait a minute. Jesus doesn't condemn. Let me give you just a couple of witnesses. First, I will call up uh, the woman caught in adultery. Her story is recorded for us in John chapter 8. It's there that the Pharisees captured this woman. Uh, the Pharisees were really nothing more than religious peeping toms. They watched as uh, she and somebody else uh, did the dirty deed, and they seized her. She was scantily clad, if clothed at all. She, they, they brought her before Jesus, and they said, Jesus, the law of Moses says a woman like this needs to be stoned to death. What do you say? I don't think that these Pharisees were... Really interested in this woman they weren't necessarily interested in the law of Moses they just simply wanted to trap Jesus they were using this woman as a pawn in their ploy actually according to the law of Moses uh, both this woman and the man needed to be stoned to death because the law of God knew it always takes two to tango And so both the woman and the man deserved death because of their actions. Jesus, who's the author of the text, Jesus begins to doodle in the dirt. He begins to write something in the sand. Nobody knows for sure what he wrote, but apparently it was quite convicting. Eventually, he stood to his feet and he said to the Pharisees that have gathered, any of you without sin, go ahead and cast the first stone. I'll get out of the way so you can hit her squarely on the temple of the skull If you don't have any sin, you go right ahead and you cast the first stone. One by one, they drop their rocks, starting with the oldest down to the youngest. Jesus, realizing that no one was there except for him and that woman, he said, "Uh, dear woman, where are your accusers? She said, I have none. He said, neither do I condemn you. Now go, leave your life of sin. Jesus said to her and to anyone who would listen, I don't condemn you. I don't condone what you're doing either. So I'm calling you to leave your life of sin. If you could talk to that woman who was caught in the act of adultery, she would tell you Jesus does not condemn. But he also doesn't condone a lifestyle that's contrary to to the holiness of God. The sex, second witness I would call is a man named Nicodemus. His story is tucked away in John chapter 3. He's the teacher of Israel, yet he comes to Jesus under the cover of night. Rabbi, tell me how can a person be saved? And Jesus uh, begins to tell him that he needs to be born again. And he can't fathom the notion of entering his mother's womb for a second time and, and being born again. He says, how is this even possible? And Jesus said, you are the teacher of Israel and you don't understand this. At the end of the conversation, Jesus gives what I think are the words of Christ. Others have said it's just an editorial comment. But regardless, it is the most popular verse in all the Bible, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. John 3:17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. You see friends, Jesus did not come to condemn us. We're already condemned. Because of our sinful nature, because of our rebellion against God, we are condemned. You can't be more condemned. You're already condemned. So Jesus did not come to condemn us even further. It's not even possible. We are completely and utterly condemned. Jesus did not come for further condemnation. No, Jesus came for salvation. He came to give life to the dead. He came to give us life afresh and new. Jesus came not to condemn us, but to save us from ourselves and from our sin. So in our passage, who is he that condemns? At first read, it sounds like what Paul is saying is that Jesus Christ condemns. But I think that Paul is so excited. He's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. His pen can't move fast enough. He almost presupposes the answer to the question. Who is he that condemns? Well, the only one who's worthy, the only one who is able, the only one who has a prerogative to condemn is Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ doesn't condemn. He's the only one who can, but even the one who can doesn't. He doesn't condemn. No, what did he do? He came and died. Not just just a criminal's death, but he died in your place. It was a substitutionary death. Jesus died for your sin and mine. He was buried on the third day. He was raised from the dead. But that's not all. He ascended to the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you and for me. It's almost as if Paul is so excited about this. And he says, the one who can condemn doesn't condemn you. What's he doing? He's praying for you. The Son of God is not condemning you. He is praying for you. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26, we came to the conclusion that the Spirit of God intercedes for us. For when we are weak and we don't know what to pray, don't know how to pray, it's the Spirit who intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And here today in verse 34 of chapter 8, Paul says it's, It's God the Son who is praying for you, interceding for you. Friend, let that sink in. That in this very moment, the Son of God and the Spirit of God are praying for you. Okay, I thought there'd be a hearty amen, something, give me something. I mean, it's one thing for us to say we gain comfort in the fact that a pastor's praying for us, a spouse is praying for us a co-worker is praying for us, all of that pales in comparison to the reality that right now the Son of God and the Spirit of God are praying for you. Praying for you right now in this cosmic moment when you interact with the living God. Right now. You know through his living word that Jesus is all that you need. How do you know? Because Jesus is praying for you. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He's going to be seated there until the Father says to his son, Son, go get your church. Go get the bride. And Jesus will mount his white horse. He'll descend. He'll rescue the church. But until that moment comes, he is praying for you. Who has the right to condemn? Well, Jesus has a right to condemn, but he's not. He didn't come to condemn, he came to save. He died, he was buried, he was raised, he ascended, he's seated at the right hand, and right now, in this very moment, friend, he's interceding for you. In verse 35, the apostle comes to the top of the staircase. It's the fifth and final question. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Once again, it's D. Martin Lloyd-Jones who said that Paul is ascending a staircase of theological questions. He gets to the fifth question in verse 35. It's the top of the staircase. He looks around. and, And the only question that can come to his mind as he surveys the landscape of God's sovereignty throughout the ages, he just simply asks the question, who can separate us? From the love of God in Christ. Who, what, can sever us, rip us from the agape eternal love of God demonstrated perfectly in Jesus Christ? What follows are seven options. Seven things in the first century and in this century would be uh, suitable subjects for us to think to ourselves, uh, can this separate us from God? He gives seven. That's the number of totality. It's the number of completion. It's as if he's listing out everything in the world that potentially could separate us from the love of God in Christ. Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. And if you listen closely to the sacred text, after every one, you hear the church throughout the ages declaring a collective no. Who can separate us? Can, trouble, no. Hardship, the church says no. Persecution, no. Famine, no. Nakedness, no. Danger, no. Can the sword separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus and collectively throughout the ages the church stands up and the church says, no, there is nothing that can separate us. Friend, let's think about this a little bit deeper. Is it possible for trouble to separate you from Christ? Is it possible that the trouble of COVID or the trouble of cancer separate you from Christ? And the answer is a collective no. Can it be that the hardship of a, of a potential economic uh, shutdown, is it possible that a downturn economy, is it possible that the hardship of financial life where there's more month than money, is it possible that that could separate you from the love of God in Christ? And the answer is no. Is it possible, friend, for persecution, persecution that rips apart Family members, persecution that leaves behind deformed bodies, persecution that brings death. Is it possible for the persecution against the church to separate us from the love of Christ? And the church says no. Is it possible that famine, famine that results in bloated stomachs and empty cupboards? Is it possible that famine could separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer is no. Is it possible? Is it possible that nakedness, nakedness from the shame of dirty deeds of your life? Nakedness that could be a result of crimes that are done against you, like rape and incest and molestation? Is it possible that those vicious, vile things can separate you from the love of God in Christ? And the answer is no. Friend, is it possible that danger, danger from a thug, danger from a thief, danger from violence in our streets, is it possible that danger could keep you from the love of God in Christ? And the answer is no. Is it possible that the sword, the sword that can sever the head from From the body and puncture the heart? Is it possible that the sword could separate you from the love of God in Christ? And please help me, church, because the collective answer throughout the ages from the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, those of the redeemed, we say no. Nothing, nothing, nothing can separate us. Who can separate us? What can separate us? Nothing. Because our security is in Christ, in Christ alone. He is strong enough. He is able enough. He is secure enough. There is nothing that can separate us. Paul quotes Psalm 44. It's a psalm that testifies that we are the sheep. And like slaughtered sheep, we're surrounded by suffering. And just because there's the presence of suffering, that does not mean the absence of the Savior. And Paul says, no, we are more than conquerors through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has given us victory. So I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Friend, this is a chapter that begins with no condemnation. It ends with no separation. And all throughout, it gives reasons for glorious celebration. We have everything we need in Christ. The reason we can be so confident it's because God secured our salvation in Jesus. And Jesus not only went to the tomb and experienced your hell, went to the grave and rose from the third day, rose on the third day. We, we know that because of those things, we can handle whatever life brings. There's no reason for fear. Fear. There's no reason for us to be overwhelmed and consumed with the culture and chaos of life. Why? Simply stated, because I serve a risen Savior, and he's in the world today. And I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I see his hand of mercy, I hear his voice of cheer, and just the time I need him, he's always near. He lives, he lives Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and he talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives, he lives. Salvation to impart. You ask me how I know he lives. Because he lives within my heart. Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, all fear is gone. Because I know he holds the future and life is worth the living just because he lives. Friend, because he lives, there's no condemnation. Because he lives, there's no cele- there's no separation. And because he lives, there's reason for great celebration. All throughout the ages, the church has come and stood around Romans chapter 8. And here in Romans chapter 8, they say with the apostle Paul, I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angel, nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, my Lord. So may the Holy Spirit fall. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord, I pray that today will be the day of your salvation. That literally you'll come running down the aisle. Then immediately you'll get to your computer and you will email me and just say, I need this Jesus. I don't have that kind of confidence. I don't have that kind of security. I don't have that kind of hope. And the only person that can give you that hope and the confidence and the assuredness is Lord Jesus. He's the only one. So if you don't know him as Savior and Lord today, Won't you come and receive his free gift by faith? If you are a believer, let's be honest. These days and weeks and months, this whole year, has been crazy. And maybe there is so much fear and anxiety and confusion and worry that creeps into your spirit. It, it, it lodges into your mind, and you try to push it away. You try to suppress it. You try to get rid of it. You try to sing your way under, under glory. You, you, you try everything possible, but it seems you're just overwhelmed with worry and chaos today. Today, beloved, know who you are in Christ. You're the redeemed, chosen before the very foundation of the world, called by God, justified by the God who justifies And you'll be glorified, escorted to heaven one day. And between now and then, you just simply say, all my confidence is in Christ. All my security is in Jesus. For there is nothing that can sever me from the love of God in Christ. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give you this invitation. And Father, please... Will you retrieve the lost? Please, God, will you strengthen the redeemed? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.